and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about tutorial levels. If you'd like to skip this intro, you can press and hold X at any time. Warning, by skipping this intro, you'll miss out on the achievement for completing the Game Breaking Feature training level. To help me discuss tutorials as a man who always forgets how to crouch a name, it's my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, got it in one, man. It was perfect. You, perfect. you did it, nailed it There's on the first no try. Ed- there is no proud. editing necessary. No, it was great. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. And we're not even like, I'm not even rusty at podcast. I can't even use that as an excuse this time because we've been recording these things. Bang, 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 we, bang, bang. We have been, been now, busy since we're back. That's for sure. I know. So I think I'm just bad at podcasting. I think that, I think after 40 something episodes, it's, I just have to accept it. No one's good at podcasting. You just do a little better each time. Some people are great at it, but I don't, it, not me. Not me. What are we doing today? What are we doing here? Today we're talking about tutorial levels, and we have a amazing guest to talk about tutorials with. He's a co-founder of Rose City Games and a lead community organizer for the Portland Indie Game Squad. Please welcome to the show, Will Lewis. Will, Hello how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for having an amazing beard, sir. Oh, thank you for... Yeah, I, uh, I, I am a, 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 I am a fellow beard aficionado. Uh-huh. Let me say, sir, your, yours is quite majestic. You get people waving at you on the streets and uh, scooter gangs giving you the nod and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, well, and you'll and you'll know this, you'll know this better than scooter anybody. Scooter gangs but... is that what's going on in Portland? Dude, I don't know. One time I was in San Francisco and this guy like blew by on a scooter. A bunch of them had big beards and gave me a little nod, and everybody oh. looked at me and said like. Oh my god, did you see that? He like acknowledged you and was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, I get it all the time." <laughs> yes, I saw it. <laughs> yeah. The 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 question the question I get all the time and I'm sure you do as well is, "How long you been growing that thing?" That's it's like, like the it's like the it's the go-to icebreaker for anybody who sees my beard and wants to talk about it. It is. You can tell someone's a little bit more interested if they ask you if you comb it or condition it. Mm. Yep, yep. That's the that's the next question. Follow up. <laughs> now my so so my weird beard experience uh, was I was working on a television show out in LA and uh, I was driving one of the production vehicles and I was stopped at a red light and someone next to me honked and I looked over and it was another guy with a beard and all he did was stroke his beard <laughs> yeah. with one hand and nod at me. <laughs> that was all he did. That's upsetting. The other loves that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I know. It's, it's funny because I don't, I don't feel like that kind of person. Like I don't, I don't feel like the kind of person to uh, go out of my way to talk about someone else's facial hair but man some people some people love coming up to me to talk about it they see your beard they're like hey my, my friend steve's has a beard maybe you know him yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> they must have freaked out when avatar came out i think everybody thinks they can like connect their beards and be one or something oh, like that gross. i'm not i'm, I'm not like in the that worst one. the most disgusting part of that movie is like <laughs> oh, so upsetting the little the the hair tendrils yeah, yeah. Wasn't that how they like? Never mind. Let's not get into that. <laughs> Moving on from that. <laughs> so, Will, what were you doing prior to starting Rose City Games? What was your background in gaming before that? So, prior to Rose City, I was running a game development community, which I still run, called the Portland Indie Game Squad, and we provide networking opportunities and events and resources for people that want to just kind of, you know, get together and make games in Portland. And that kind of all started from being in film school and animation school, but always wanting to make games and thinking, hey, I don't have a lot of opportunities to work with other people here. I don't know much about coding and I can teach myself, but I don't prefer that method. 
And I bet a lot of people kind of feel the same way. So I started that community to get everybody together and it just grew from there. And now I still, uh, I'm still the lead community organizer for the Portland Indie Game Squad. But with some of the experience that I gained in game development and event coordination and everything like that, I was able to start Rose City Games. So when did Rose City Games start? Like what caused you to start your own company? Technically, the way we say it is that uh, the first event that we put on, the first paid event that we put on in 2015 was the start of Rose City. And we hosted a game jam for Cartoon Network where about 200 developers came together in the same space over 48 hours and made games based on the OKKO property before it was like publicly known or anything like that. And the goal there was to kind of incorporate a lot of technology creatives into kind of helping found this IP by making up little kind of mini games that would potentially go along with the release of the IP. So people were paid over the weekend and winners got prize money and the grand prize winner got their 48 hour game that they made funded into a full mobile release, which ended up being the Dynamite Watkins game that you can download on the App Store. Very cool. That's like that's just like an interesting origin story for a company, I think. It's, I, yeah. When I think of like starting a company, I think of like, well, we went down to the courthouse and we filed paperwork right. <laughs> and formed an LLC. And you're like, no, motherfucking Adult Swim yeah. <laughs> made us a company. <laughs> that's pretty cool, man. So so what was the uh, what was the goal in starting the company? Was it just sort of like to get a, a ragtag group of people together making video games or, or was there something else behind it? Basically, I've always wanted to make games, and the Cartoon Network Game Jam was kind of a marriage of a lot of the skills that I had learned in community organizing, but also kind of allowed me to start exercising design skills, animation skills, music skills, newfound programming skills, all that. So uh, I was able to kind of work with a lot of different people and see these games to come to fruition. And... The game jam itself, uh, that was the 16th game jam that I had organized at the time. So I was, you know, getting really good at that kind of thing. And it was a paid opportunity for us to be able to do this thing that we knew and loved and support a community that we knew and loved. And then, in a sense, use the money that we had earned from running the game jam to continue forward and start seeing how we might be able to fund making our own games. And right now you guys are working on The World Next Door. Yes. And I have to be honest, this is this is the reason uh, that I had reached out to you. Because I oh, think awesome. you guys had announced that this game was coming out, that you were working on this game. It blew up my timeline on Twitter. Excellent. So that, that was like my first uh, introduction to you and Rose City Games. So t- tell me about it. Tell me about The World Next Door. What is it? How, d- how did this game come about? So funny enough, uh, The World Next Door also came about via a game jam. We are uh, partnering with Viz Media to do this game. Uh, They do the publishing and distribution for One Punch Man and Sailor Moon and the Pokemon uh, manga and anime. And we are looking at kind of creating this presence for Viz starting to step into games. And when we wanted to kind of start that strategy off, we were looking at a lot of how, uh, you know, a really a lot of great game companies are starting to really respect the creativity that smaller teams are bringing to the table. You look at teams like Devolver, for example. And one of the things that we wanted to do was kind of keep that game jam spirit going and incorporate as many people as we could into the kind of founding of this idea. 
And uh, at the same time, we just needed to make a game. So we had kind of a smaller kind of design and art and IP generation focused game jam where we got together and kind of took some base game ideas and said like, cool, like, what would this look like as something that a Viz audience member would relate to? Or how would we make this game fun or anything like that? In this game jam, we worked with Instagram artist Lord Grizz to come up with this concept of kind of like a monster high school, like a parallel dimension thing. And it just kind of started from there. And it was that was one of the ideas that was kind of most resonant with something that could be a really cool, like narrative oriented game and something that would really fit Viz's audience. And we had this idea of kind of puzzle battles because I was uh, always a fan of Tetris Attack, but then I was playing a lot of Tetris Attack at the time and Pokemon Puzzle League and Pokemon Puzzle Challenge. And uh, so we uh, we kind of took it from there. So it's a it's a it's a puzzle game. It's a narrative game. Is is there something you could kind of compare it to that's ex- that's existing or is it is it a whole new creature? The way I usually describe it is it's kind of half visual novel, half puzzle battle. And the puzzle battles are definitely inspired by Tetris Attack, but it's not really something that I've seen much of. It's got some match three elements, but the unique part is that you, the character, are on the board with your enemies. So you're kind of kiting around them and dodging their attacks and all while kind of navigating the environment and trying to find the right pieces to match up to cast spells that damage them. And sometimes you have to time those spells so that they are going to hit correctly with regard to like your enemy's distance away from you or anything like that, or uh, which enemy is attacking you closely and which one's hitting you at a range, anything like that. So it's kind of got a lot of different things going on there. Some of the more narrative elements are very like choice oriented, where it kind of influences a little bit of the story later on. And you're, you know, unlocking micro content as you go based on the relationships that you're forming with characters, because you have the uh, classic uh, mass effect kind of decision trees popping up every so often. What systems is it coming out on? Because this sounds like it would, and I'm just throwing this out, it sounds like it would be sort of like the perfect Switch handheld experience. But where, where's you know it getting it. released at? Yeah, we're going to be on PC and Switch on day one. And uh, awesome. platforms include like Steam and Itch and everything else like that. Once the words like, it seems like a perfect Switch you know, game came out of my mouth. I was like, shit, I hope it's on Switch because yeah. otherwise I sound like, a, otherwise I sound like a monster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like one of those people who's like, you know, you should really think about getting your game on the... Uh, uh, on the uh, the switch there. I know. I love saying yes when people ask that question. <laughs> we were in the uh, we were in the Nintendo Indie Direct right before PAX West last year, so that was very very exciting. Oh, sweet, sweet. And did you say the release date? I'm sorry if I missed it. When's it? When do you, have you published a release date for it yet? Are you guys still just coming out in a couple? It it's coming out in a couple months. We're still uh, locking down the exact date, but it will be announced extremely soon. Whenever you figure that date out or have any announcements, please share them with us and we'll be happy to, to get the word out as much as we can. Game looks really sweet. I could see myself. It looks like the kind of game I could lose 100 hours to without right. even thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of Tetris Attack, but I like I like that it also has a narrative component to it. I'm just huge into narrative and bad at puzzles. So maybe <laughs> that'll balance out so that I actually kind of enjoy that type of game again. I really like the games that are coming out recently that are just true hybrids of all kinds of different things, like Slay the Spire being something that's a little dungeon crawler and a lot deck building game. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. um, more and more people are doing that. And it's kind of like 
finally, like my two favorite Super Nintendo games all in one. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the Portland Indie Game Squad and you're a lead community organizer. What does that mean? Like, what does a lead community organizer do? As the lead community organizer for Pig Squad, my gig is usually to just make sure everything's on track. I'm the president of the nonprofit. It's a it's a registered 501c3 nonprofit and everything there is volunteer for everybody that participates. Lead community organizer is basically the fancy way of saying that I founded it and I do a big majority of the work and if I'm not going to post an event then the event might not get posted kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, on day to day I'll usually be paying attention to uh, our forums and we have like Twitter and Slack and Facebook and everything. I'll be keeping watch for event opportunities and everything. If uh, an MC, need for an MC arises for any of our events, then I'll typically be doing that. But over the last eight years, we've been seeing more and more and more participation from the community, and that's what we want it to be all about. And uh, we now have a full, you know, nonprofit board, a team of organizers that are registered with the nonprofit kind of thing, and more and more we're having events where community members are speaking uh, in front of everybody else and uh, kind of becoming the headliner rather than me becoming the headliner. So more and more, I'm kind of sticking behind the scenes on some of that stuff. But at the same time, uh, I'm typically emceeing and I'm the face that people knows and those kinds of things. I think it's so cool that you're out there doing that kind of work, helping people get get established in right. the indie Thank game you. space. I always appreciate when we get to talk to people like you. We talked to Jared Huntley in the past mm -hmm. um, and he's out in Cleveland doing sort of the same thing. So if someone is interested, if someone's in the Portland area and interested into in getting into the pig squad, what can they do? How do they get involved? Yeah, if somebody's in the Portland area, or even if they're not, it's super conventional to uh, just join up on all of our social channels. There's a lot of people talking in our Slack about a ton of different things. We have a Unity channel and a Game Jams channel and a Looking for Work channel and all those kinds of things. Our Twitter is also super active with just making sure that we're keeping tabs on what everybody's working on and sharing that with everybody. And then some of those instances of involvement can really help organizers when we are out and about at conventions or uh, we're participating in a lot more of our professional capacities to reach out to these people that are doing great work and saying like, oh yeah, like somebody is asking for a 3D modeler and I thought you might be interested, go check that out. Or, uh, hey, does anybody want to go and uh, help organize this big party with me and showcase your game? Because a lot of eyes are going to get on it, those kinds of things. So we're definitely right now more on the side of education and getting people started and kind of helping people break that barrier of talking to other people who are making games. But every once in a while now and then in the future, we're going to be focusing a lot more on making sure that there are also more professional opportunities for people to understand how the business works, make sure that people are uh, knowing a lot more about how to scope a game and do some production management, like all those kinds of things. So yeah, uh, joining up online is a really easy way. If people are uh, in town on vacation in Portland or passing by or anything like that, I always encourage people to just hit me up and check in and see if there's an event going by because a vast majority of, of our events are free and open to the public and uh, they have planned activities for people to either participate in or prompts to say, hey, here's how to use this event to uh, most benefit you or to support others. These sound like wonderful tutorials Ooh. to get people into designing games. Jared. Good, 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 good. Yeah, that's good. It, it's, the first, it's the first segue I think I've ever 
stuck the landing on. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, at least let me at least let me have this one, Jared. Let me feel like I segued well, Jared. Why don't we segue into our topic of discussion today? Talk about the origins of tutorials. Where did tutorials get their start? The origin of tutorials, we kind of talked a little bit back in episode 30 when we were talking about lore, how early video games relegated a lot of information about the story and context in their instruction manuals. The instruction manuals used to come with games, believe it or not, before everything went digital or a box came with a download code in it with a piece of paper. Um, I actually used to love those. I missed them. I know. They were so good. Like the, the art in them was always really cool. And I did get the feeling sometimes that the manual, whoever wrote the manuals sometimes didn't play the game because <laughs> there was always like <laughs> slightly different, uh, there's a different tone in it than there was from um, the actual game. But it was, it was cool. I enjoyed that. I remember getting in the car after my, my parents would like buy me a game and I would open it up and read the, the manual right away. Yep, me too. That's, that's, that's me as well. But yeah, I mean, pri- prior to the console of the 1980s, most onboarding for the games was through the technical writing and, and the manuals. One of the earlier examples is Super Mario Brothers. Most people are familiar with this game. It was designed for the Famicom and the Nintendo by uh, Shigeru. I, I have never actually heard his first name pronounced is it is you Shigeru think Miyamoto everyone knows Miyamoto Super Mario Brothers is one of our early examples because everybody who's played a video game is pretty familiar with it and the infamous world one level one or people just call it one one is considered kind of a master class of onboarding level design it allowed players to explore a lot of what you're going to be doing throughout the game in a low risk setting and then you know kind of stepped it up from there but it was such a good example because of the ways that it just naturally introduced you to the mechanics. In a 2015 interview in Eurogamer, Miyamoto said, quote, we wanted the player to gradually and naturally understand what they're doing. The first course was designed for that purpose so that they can learn what the game is all about. After that, we wanted them to play more freely. That's the approach we've taken with all the games that we make. And I, th- I think that's a really cool way to handle tutorials and we see that in some games and I kind of drawing a blank, but I, I suspect that when it's done well, you kind of don't notice it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's definitely the, uh, the Futurama quote. When you do things well, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. Exactly. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more as, as we talk about this, but yeah, tutorials, there's a lot of different designs and, and theories. I think about how best to handle tutorials with modern games these days. Now, before we get too far afield of level one, one, Will, you said you went to, you were in film school. You didn't do any video game design education? Not education, no. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess we can just scratch this question off. <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, have, have you studied level one, one from, from Mario? Um, and I guess maybe not in a, uh, in an education capacity, but since moving into video game development, have you gone back and, and done research on, on, these old design philosophies from games made prior to 2000, I guess I'll say. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there is that classical design school by the name of YouTube that, uh, you know, I think I think it's interesting how people have really popularized game design, not only because tools have become accessible, but, but just because looking back on these things has become more accessible. Everybody knows the Ego Raptor, Sequelitis series, and everything like that. And Mark Brown does a really good job of explaining game mechanics. I mean, even mm-hmm. as comedy focused as it is, 
Dunkey does a great job. Like you can tell he knows what he's talking about. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's been a really cool experience to go back and play through a lot of other games and see how people have opened up those worlds after this intro tutorial level. I mentioned Donkey Kong Country 2 in our in our document here that it's something that I go back and play pretty frequently. And it's pretty easy to see how the first couple of levels not only showcase the design of the game and how unique enemy types are just taking advantage of modular systems to expand and make just a crazy huge great experience uh, but you can definitely see that level one one being a little bit of an intro where everything else uh, opens a lot more to exploration now in in like the video game circles um, among devs is it as notoriously known as it seems like it is for being a tutorial level because when i was doing research for this topic it came up everywhere. It was like, this is the pinnacle of tutorials for video games. Does it feel that way on the inside of game design that people think about level 1-1 in that way? I think people think about level 1-1 in that way, but they don't talk about it. I think based on a lot of this, uh, you know, advent of people being able to make their own games, a lot of people have really internalized that they have a very specific opinion about how to tutorialize a game. Something like level 1-1 is definitely very on track with how a lot of people want to tutorialize their games uh, in at least the you know indie game development circles. Yeah, I was going to say, because it seems like AAA game design has moved away from, I guess, the philosophy that was that the groundwork was laid for with uh, level 1-1. Because, and I guess I'll open this up for a little bit of discussion, but does level 1-1 of Super Mario Brothers count as a tutorial level by today's standards? I would think so, yes. I would say that when somebody goes in and analyzes that game and that level, they would say, look, this level is tutorializing the mechanics for the player. And uh, at that point, you just called it a tutorial. So, And how about you, Jared? I mean, with knowing sort of the trappings that go along with uh, like modern tutorial design in AAA games, does level 1-1 still seem like a tutorial to you? Because I think there's there's things that have been added to the equation over time, especially as games have become more and more complex, that it, it doesn't feel like you can do a level 1-1 anymore. Like you can't make a level 1-1 in a game anymore. At least that's kind of how it feels to me. But how do you feel about that, Jared? Mario 1-1 is not the first thing that would come to my mind when you're thinking about a tutorial, but that's because, you know, I'm coming from the, the end user's perspective. And I think that's why it's so effective is because it's sort of just blends in with the game, right? It's not like this is your tutorial level. This is how you press this button to jump. And this is how you go forward. Uh, it, it, you just kind of figure it out because that's, you know, they, they leave you those clues in the way that they did that. So I think the first thing that would come to my mind would not be that. Does that answer your question? I guess. <laughs> sure. That, that meets the minimum requirements for the question. <laughs> <that> I <asked. laughs> No, I, so I, I guess maybe let's try to define what a tutorial level is, and maybe that'll help us as we move forward in the discussion. Because when I think of a tutorial level, at least in like kind of a in a in a modern context, I think of a lot of those things that you had mentioned, Jared. I think of you know the you walk up to a sign and it tells you to press X to jump, and it tells you to press Square to swing your sword, and, and it, it feels very sort of like sectioned off into its own department its own section of a game mm -hmm. and i don't see very often at least and again maybe it, maybe i do see it and it just doesn't register with me because it's done so well but what i don't see is just we're going to drop you in this into this level 
you know, we're going to drop you into this game world and you're going to sort of naturally, organically pick up on these components. So, Will, when defining a tutorial in your head, what springs to your mind when you're thinking about tutorial levels? I'm usually less thinking about tutorial levels and more thinking about what parts of our games are going to tutorialize features for the player. It's really hard to pull this off and a lot of the times not recommended, but even when you introduce a new mechanic two hours into the game or something like that, how is the player going to know that they're going to be able to utilize this feature? Uh, a lot of the times it will be through level design. I mean, if you look at Twilight Princess or something like that, the double hook shot was a great example of saying, hey, there's this whole new, this this world is opened up for you that you were never able to explore before. Look ahead of you and try to get out of this room using this. It's a puzzle. And I think a lot of those are very, very effective tutorialization elements because you are challenging the player with maybe not a memorable experience that will stay with them for the rest of their lives, but with a memorable experience that will get them through the game. And I think that's really important. What you're talking about to me feels like very, I don't, I don't know the perfect word to put on it, but like natural kind of like organic game design. Like if you present sort of a simple challenge to a player and they've got the tools to solve it, then that to me feels maybe like the best way to teach people. But I think so often what we see is the, uh, I don't know, I, I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption 2 lately, where literally everything is done in a text box in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. Uh, uh, yeah, it, man, what a mess that is to me. I, I, <laughs> I do not enjoy the way that they've designed that. But to me, that feels more common than the, um, you know, than this Zelda example that we're talking about, or even going back to the Mario 1-1, like, mm -hmm. It, it seems more common than that. Well, I mean, as far as Red Dead Redemption 2 goes, I, that actually feels like one of the things in that game that feels dated to me. Because, I, I, I don't know, I just feel like I don't see that as much in, in other games. So, Red Dead Redemption 2 comes with its own, I think, suite of issues around the, the onboarding process and, and introducing players to mechanics in that game. But putting what you're supposed to be doing in a text box that's not unique to Red Dead Redemption. Sure, that still happens all that still happens all the time in a lot of games. Well, I think it's uh, interesting because you have hybrids of that too, where you know this example that I just gave of challenging somebody to exit a level. You know, it's the future of their game depends on getting out of this room and using this new tool, the the double hook shot in Twilight Princess. That also still comes with a text box that tells you just a little bit about what's going on. And if you also look at like Cuphead's tutorial, for example, you are put in the platformer and you are given full control of your character. And there are just little hints in the background to uh, textual hints to tell you what to do. And then there are obstacles in front that you need to directly surpass using those uh, tactics. So I think still like it's it's much less, in my opinion, about a tutorial level or this is the tutorial element, but tutorializing as far as you can uh, and using any which way hybrid elements of prior games to make sure that that's a smooth transition for your player. Now, I mentioned I'm playing Red Dead Redemption 2, but what are you playing right now, Will, that has a, uh, a tutorial that kind of stands out to you for, for one reason or another? Interestingly enough, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how Slay the Spire in a similar way has more or less or an organic tutorial. It 
in my opinion, by no means has a tutorial. It never really teaches you how to play. But if you look at the idea of a deck building game in general, where you start with a set amount of cards that is heavily designed to encounter a heavily curated experience in your first uh, you know, battle or uh, activity or whatever you want to call it, in that game, you have attacks and blocks in your hand when you fight your first enemy. And your first enemy is designed to be very easy to surpass. And once you click on cards, an arrow comes up so you can assign that card's effects to other things. And it is an information-based game where they have it set up to where you can highlight pretty much anything in the game and get information about it. And a lot of the times that information is pretty useless when you very, very first start the game because you're like, I don't know what the status effect vulnerable means. And I have this trinket that lets me draw three cards, but I don't even know what my hand size is. But I think something like that is a really great way of saying, you know, this is how you play. This is how you expend energy or do damage. And then after you uh, progress in the game a little bit further, you're defeating a couple of monsters. You get to draw cards to build your deck as you're going along. And it's almost through player curiosity that you are trying to tutorialize the game for yourself. And in a similar way, uh, I think that's a very, very effective method of tutorialization because you are challenging the player to work through this thing. Now, Slay the Spire is, I think it is defined as an indie game, right? Like we would all classify yeah, I think that it's as a, indie. Yeah, a very, very small team. So I would say that. Do you feel like indie game development is... Um, a little more willing to take risks with allowing players to feel confused. Is that maybe why it feels like in AAA design, so much of the onboarding is spelled out in black and white to the players because they're, you know, they're, they're having millions of people play the game and they're worried that if a good portion of those people don't understand every single little thing, they're going to be disappointed or upset with the game. Does it feel like indies may be a, a little more willing to to let the players feel confused or solve issues on their own? I think that's hard to say because you can't necessarily let your player feel confused unless you are refusing someone's advice, which is a very uh, a very hard thing to just talk about in game design in general. You know, there's a lot of people that I think don't play test their games before putting them out there. Uh, if you read much about Y2K, a postmodern RPG, and the recent reviews it got, uh, it had uh, problems other than its tutorialization, but most people said, you know, hey, this game is very, very hard to enjoy on a moment-to-moment -moment basis because I'm playing the same minigame to do damage every time. If I miss that minigame, then I do zero damage, which prolongs, prolongs the fight even further. And unless I get a critical, I'm just doing threes and fives in a in a 30-point world. So I think that's an interesting way of saying, like, hey, we need to, like, listen to players, and we we either need to work with them to not confuse them, and we, but we also need to listen to them when they have advice. A result of a lot of those reviews consists of a tweet that Axe Studios put out a couple of days ago saying, hey, we just did a bunch of balance fixes. And I didn't read that, I didn't read that change log, but I bet it had a lot to do with the numbers that people were frustrated with. Now, how about, how about you, Jared? Are you, are you playing anything recently that has a tutorial that sticks out to you? I'm still working my way through Assassin's Creed Odyssey. 
And that is an interesting game for this discussion, I feel like, because it basically takes every mechanic from every game ever and puts it into this one thing. <laughs> it, yeah, it, right. it has mechanics on mechanics. And uh, I'm I'm about 30 hours into the game, which is probably not even a quarter of the way through if you are really trying to 100% Ooh. this thing. Uh, and, and it's still introducing new mechanics. And, you know, it's... I don't think it's bad or a good thing there's i mean there's a lot going on there but it, it is pretty much just like let's stop the gameplay for a second and let us bring up this full screen page that explains what this new, new thing is going to be and i kind of lose track of it because there's so much going on um but i think just by the fact that i have played similar games in the past it, it's fine um but i could imagine if you're coming into this as not a huge gamer like that is a lot of information to try to remember i was gonna say i think that's an interesting point to bring up with regard to you know do AAA studios allow their players to be confused more than indie game studios or vice versa again i think that's up to the studio to you know ensure before a game's release that they're not confusing their users but just some kind of micro element is even just the menu in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Uh, when you first turn that game on, it's just like, what is going on? Because there's <laughs> not only just like a very disparate, like kind of main interface that you're looking at, you're also looking at this bar on the right side of the screen that seems to duplicate a lot of your menu options. And even when it comes to the verbiage of how certain activities are labeled in there, uh, I have a hard time remembering where Spirit Board is sometimes. Like, uh, I I had no idea how to build a playlist in the soundtrack thing without clicking around a couple times and, uh, you know, attempting and failing, um, which is, in my opinion, a little bit funner to do when you're a character in a game rather than navigating a menu. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's that's very small. You figure it out and you plow through it. Uh, I guess Not that, always. I guess, yeah, right. It's a, Not it's a tutorial, I guess. I'm I'm saying specifically, uh, specifically the Smash Brothers interface. You you plow through it, and you're like, "Yep, I know where to play the game," and all that kind of thing. But what a confusing like kind of starter element, real quick, just in a in a AAA title. Yeah, I'll tell you about an experience I had. I think the last Madden game I played might have been like two, 2010 or 2011, something like that. And granted, it had been a couple years before I had played the you know a, a previous Madden game. But I jumped into it and I did not recognize what I was looking at. Right. I didn't understand. I didn't understand what you know about that truck stick. Dude, I, there was all kinds of stuff in the menu. Like, I, I literally had no idea how to just play a game. Like, I just want to play a game of how do I just pick two modern football teams and play them against one another? Um, and there was also an ad for progressive on the screen mocking me. <laughs> uh, oh Flo, Flo, was, Flo was mocking the fact that I no longer understood how to play Madden. And uh, I think I <laughs> traded that game right back in. <laughs> I right. think that was my experience with the last Madden game I played. Right. And I mean, you got to even think about that with a tutorial. It's like there's not only uh, just the character bashing the other character on screen. It's the interface. That was a weird one. I think that that's a that's a rare one, though. That doesn't happen to me too True. often where I'm True. like, I look at a menu and I'm like, nope, <laughs> this game is too complicated <laughs> for me now. I will go play something else. <laughs> Beyond the the Zelda example that you gave earlier, what games have good examples of tutorials in, in your mind? Are there any AAA games that stick out in your mind as having a, a really good onboarding experience for the player that, that feels natural and doesn't feel like tacked on or, uh, I don't know, 
like supplemental? Yeah, I think there's a couple that do an interesting job of putting a player on a linear path and making them truck through and learn a little bit. Uh, those are typically really, really good for diegetic introduction to mechanics and everything like that and very organic learning. But then there's also that idea of putting a character in an arena to play around, test their skills, learn a couple things about what the buttons do, everything like that. And those typically are a little bit less narrative intertwined, but they can still be that way. I mean, two two games that I'm thinking about right now off the top of my head for just kind of some interesting uses of tutorialization that are still very effective include uh, Katamari Damashi and Katamari Forever, where you are put into an arena, which is typically not a very diegetic thing to do, to, you know, pull the player out, put the player character in a uh, environment that's totally separate from what they're going to be doing in their main goals. But that works because of the nature of the tutorial slash omnipotent character that's always narrating your life. Uh, the Prince of the Cosmos is learning how to roll a Katamari and jump around and do a quick turn as instructed by his father, the King of the Cosmos, who is ever-present through the entire game. So even though the environment that you're rolling around in isn't part of the character's goals, uh, it is still tied together by the King of the Cosmos, who is putting his son in this training arena so that he can go complete his goals. So that's kind of an interesting one. Uh, I think another really interesting one, one of my favorite games ever, is Resident Evil 4 where that game is almost kind of it almost kind of has a reverse tutorial where you are thrown into one of the most difficult parts in the game at the very very beginning and i think that that just is a testament to how different games can have different tutorial types to a super huge advantage because at the beginning of resident evil 4 leon kennedy is brought to this village to investigate the disappearance of the president's daughter and he's going to be going around and asking people what they think about uh, this photo that he's sharing. Hey, have you seen her? And he's ambushed by a group of villagers in this large uh, just arena, this town. And you just have your handgun and you don't have that many bullets. There's a couple of houses to go into, but there are a lot of people coming at you. So it's very interesting to that they put you into this almost impossible situation which actually allows you the comfort to, <laughs> it's not very comfortable, but it allows you to run around the stage and figure out the controls like on a whim. And you will die a couple of times if you've never played a game like that. But eventually you'll pop by a couple of things and in desperation, see a prompt pop up on your screen for entering a door or pushing something in front of a door to block incoming bad guys or to shatter the glass so that you can pick up the shotgun. Pretty early on, the guy with the chainsaw comes out, the, the one hit kill. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another really, really interesting example of it's kind of both an arena based and a linear based tutorial that kind of just throws you into the action and expects you to figure it out. And uh, it's actually quite a quick learning experience because you're doing it out of desperation, which just yep. folds right back into the, the diegetic nature of like this game being a horror game. 
you're touching on something that I think is really cool that not all tutorials do, which a lot of tutorials or, or onboarding for games are about teaching the player the mechanics of the game. It's about like, you know, how to aim your weapon, how to shoot your weapon, how to use an item, whatever it is. Like those are all sort of mechanics based things. But as you're talking about Resident Evil 4, I think about one of my favorite games, Dark Souls, mm-hmm. which which has a very similar experience at the beginning of that game where it, it teaches you the mechanics, but then it also uses the introduction of that game to establish the like the feel for the game. It, right. es- it establishes your expectations for what you're going to be doing a lot in that game, which is dying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the first things one of the first things that you encounter is that. Um, oh, what is it like the uh, abyss the asylum, demon or the asylum demon asylum asylum demon? Yes, thank you. And yes, it's technically possible to defeat it. Uh, your first time encountering it, but most people are just going to get pummeled by that thing. And that's part of the experience of learning to play that game is becoming okay with the idea that you're going to perish from time to time. I like the Resident Evil 4 one too, because beyond it being a horror game, it's a survival horror game. Right. And I think such a, a big part of survival horror that I think has got lost over time and we're starting to maybe see creep back into game design is scarcity mm-hmm. so to give you you know whatever it is a magazine of handgun bullets and then ask you to escape a you know an entire village that's trying to kill you that teaches you something about the value of those items that you have in your possession it's onboarding you for the experience of playing the game on top of you know learning the mechanics of like how to how do i dodge these things you know how do i effectively get away from people that are trying to kill me when i can't just shoot everything in the face yeah, I think that point about survival elements in, in Resident Evil 4 is another really good point, in addition to it prepping you up for an, a horror experience. Uh, because they do run you through a, a reading tutorial where it teaches you how to reload your gun and shoot and aim and everything like that. But one thing that I think is so interesting that that inspires is you read that tutorial at a very specific moment. And after you read that, you're like, oh that means something's coming. So it's not only further inspires that uh, anxiety, but it also tells you, hey, this is a game about being prepared for something before you jump into the fray. And then there was something else that you mentioned, which was the tutorial feeling like a part of the game, feeling like a, a, a like it fits within the narrative. Now, Jared, I'll throw this one to you. Are there any tutorials that you can think of that satisfy that click perfectly into place with the game that they're they're in it it seems like that's the direction modern games are trying to go they they kind of just introduce a a few mechanics at a time slowly god of war did a pretty good job of doing that the the newest god of war because you have you know your your standard weapon and you're going through the world with your son and it's kind of like a slow moving narrative moment where you're like okay so there's going to be some downtime in this game okay this is how i fight enemies um and and it's really doing you know exposition at the same time so it didn't really feel like they were trying to lecture me on how the game is going to be played but uh it was it was showing me through gameplay so i i enjoyed that quite a bit you know what what game i enjoyed that that does something like that is um fallout 3 you remember at the beginning of fallout 3 you're like a baby Oh yeah, <laughs> you're a to- you're like a, you're yeah. like a baby and then a toddler. It's so fun to me. That was such a fun way to fit the tutorial into the 
the narrative of the game right yeah, n- like, now walk to it me. doesn't make sense it, do- it doesn't make sense if you're nathan drake at you know in uncharted 4 and it's still teaching you how to use uh the whip say and then it also establishes in that game that you like yo you used the whip when you were a kid as well um or you know or how to shoot a gun you know you've been shooting guns in the uncharted series since the very first game it doesn't make sense that they then still sort of do the like oh you know aim your gun shoot the thing you know that it feels very like silly in that context but fallout 3 it makes sense that you're like an infant like the the game is like you're an idiot you're you're an idiot baby <laughs> here's a, we're just going to run you through this stuff in this contextual situation because it kind of makes sense. I, I thought that was really funny. The other one, the other one that sticks out is uh, like Portal. Like Portal sticks out for doing that too. But I think Portal is sort of the uh, <laughs> the standout in almost every single topic we bring up on this show, because Portal is like a game about playing a game. Yeah. And so they they get away with murder on every <laughs> on everything in that one. So Will, when when you are working on designing a like an onboarding process for a game. I, I'm curious since we got we have an actual game designer on the show that can yeah. that can talk <laughs> about this. What are the things that you are considering as you're designing a game? I would definitely say my favorite approach to designing mechanics and how they are communicated to the player is also by making sure that they make sense narratively. We were talking about a uh, another game that we're working on right now that's unannounced where you uh, you shoot a bullet and it kind of tracks along the side of a wall if you have a specific number of upgrades. We were talking about making that an upgrade itself, and we were saying to ourselves, okay, like, this bullet travels up the wall. What kind of things would do that? If a character were to get an upgrade where they were to shoot something and it would travel up the wall, what kind of fun theming element with what we're doing actually makes sense for that? Is it like, does a bug crawl up the wall? So you're shooting bugs. Does that make sense? Uh, oh, it kind of makes <laughs> sense. Like maybe another animal or like, what if it's a toy? Like if it's a little Android thing that you shoot and it crawls up the wall and it hits an enemy to blow up, like, oh, that makes more sense. So maybe let's try that. I think uh, a lot of those things are kind of my goal with regard to just theming and keeping things in universe, but extra bonus points if uh, you can make it part of the story as well. Uh, especially when tutorializing. I think the example of Fallout 3 where you are remembering something that you did with ch- as a child is a really, really interesting way of doing that. And it is also just kind of like a humorous comment on the, the human experience of, you know, I'm playing a video game of a child who became mm-hmm. a person or, a, you know, an adult, and they are remembering this thing that I remember too. And mm-hmm. that's that's pretty funny. And, you know, just along the lines of just Fallout's IP in general. So... Uh, I love that stuff. You know what another good example of that is? Is uh, Super Hot. That game is a game about playing a game, basically. And in the narrative, you kind of have this disembodied voice that's it's speaking to you through like these giant letters on the screen. In the beginning of that game, it, they literally just kind of spell it out, like, time only moves when you move. And like right. that, that basically summarizes the entire experience of that game. Uh, of course, there's there's more to it. It's a fantastic game if you haven't played it. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, I, I thought that that was really smart. And, you know, it's a it's it's a simple concept to get across within the first five seconds of a game. When you're designing tutorials or designing the onboarding process for the games that you're working on, are you assuming that the people who are playing your game have never played games before? 
or are you are you assuming a certain level of competency when you're designing your tutorial? Like, where do you fall in that? Or is it possible to design tutorials that appeal to people of different skill levels? I think it really depends on your audience that you're going for. Up front, as we are making the world next door, we are making sure that Viz's anime consumer audience is really in tune with the kinds of things that we're doing. Like I said, the kind of initial idea for that game came about because it looked like something that Viz would do. And it was heavily inspired by anime and it's heavily inspired by the kinds of stories that uh, anime audiences might like. Uh, Oftentimes we'll compare the story uh, elements to something like Stranger Things or The Goonies or something like that. Teens get in trouble and they uh, have to cover it up without letting anybody know as quickly as they can kind of thing. And I think when looking at an audience that has, you know, that's that's so large, you're looking at an audience that's consuming multiple different types of media and they have all kinds of different experiences with games or interactive media or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think it's really important to make sure that there are a couple of different ways that you're tutorializing. Uh, in The World Next Door, the primary tutorial is an interesting uh, example of that because you are both being shown how to cast magic by your friends, uh, but you're also learning the actual mechanics of the game because you are there in the body of the player character and uh, you're you're attacking a rock in this instance. They set up a a rock for target practice. But the skills that you learn there are going to be the ones that you carry through for the rest of the game. It's just that the next couple of battles, the stakes go up a little bit because the rock fights back because it's not a rock anymore. With a game like The World Next Door, I get the impression that it's a game that needs to be taught to the player. It's iterative in that, like, you know, you've based it on on other games like Tetris Attack and stuff like that. But to me, it sounds like a game that's unique. So the mechanics of how to play that game need to be taught to the player. Now, now I am a big fan of the game Overwatch. I've been playing it a lot, although I've, I've felt a certain level of toxicity lately that's kind of kept me from being as enthusiastic to jump into it. But one of the things that stuck out to me when I first started playing Overwatch was that it had a tutorial, but it's it's a first-person shooter. It, it felt very odd to me that, that that game had a tutorial because first-person shooters feel so ubiquitous. Like It, it feels like if you've played one, you kind of know how to play all of them. So I was wondering, Will, if you had any insight on like on why that kind of onboarding is still a thing. Studios are doing what I was saying, like they're assuming that the player, this is the first video game the player's ever played. I think it's very, very important for Blizzard to consider that Overwatch could be somebody's first game. One, because they are gunning for, no pun intended, an audience that is even much larger than their own. They're, of course, trying to appeal to people that love the games that they make. But they're also, you know, and they did it, too. They're trying to make a kind of worldwide phenomenon where they are actually an influencer Mm -hmm. in esports and everything like that. So I think that the idea that people can watch other people play and then it's this huge cultural phenomenon that these things are going on and another player can come in and say, oh, I can do that, too, or I want to be able to do that, too. And that Blizzard has an answer for that consumer is an extremely smart decision. Another reason I think that Overwatch having a tutorial is 
uh, a good idea for even people that have played first-person shooters and other mechanics but maybe aren't very good at them is that I think that games like Overwatch, where there are so many different characters and so many different strategies for how to play, is that some players need a little bit of reassurance that they can do it <laughs> in the middle of uh, so many people mm. that are so good at these games. And even when they're uh, in a match with somebody who just just started getting familiar with the character, uh, you know, they're going to be at an extreme disadvantage. Uh, I used to play Awesome Knots a whole lot, and I probably played... Uh, like an hour with each character at least before starting to play online, and I did not regret it. Uh, I knew the basic mechanics of each of the characters, but I didn't necessarily understand, you know, why I was dying immediately when this character did this, or why mm -hmm. this character could uh, lock me into place and have their teammates jump all over me, <laughs> and, you know, how to dodge that. So Dang you may. Another, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's another interesting example of just like, yeah, like having a tutorial like proves that this is, even if you know these kinds of games, it proves that this is like the kind of game that you're interested in. And it kind of teaches you, not only reteaches you the basics, but it kind of teaches you that like, yes, this is the basic of the game. This is the basics of the game. You understand how it works. It might take a second to get used to it, but you have a handle on this. Go for it. Otherwise, it might be a little bit uh, hard to get into a game like that where everybody else is just so dang good. Yeah, it just always it always feels weird to me, especially in first person shooters, because most big first person shooters have a tutorial level that you have to go through, essentially. Right. And and usually the the only thing, the only benefit I get from them uh, as someone who's been playing games my whole life is that it reminds me to invert my look. It's normally like the right. first spot in the game where I'm like, oh, shit, I got to go in go. and invert. Do you do it, Jared? Is that your is that how you, your experience with uh, tutorials? Yeah, typically. And I'm actually glad that you brought it up because I think as we as me and you talk about this, especially that we have to kind of examine our own assumptions that the games sometimes have to make or, or not make. You know, we've been playing games for 20 plus years. And mm -hmm. so we, we know those things. But, you know, even with first person shooters, most people, if you've ever played one per first-person shooter in the last 10, 15 years, you, you kind of understand how that's going to be. But that wasn't always the case. If you go back and play like original Halo, I, you know the controls are not what you would expect. It wasn't until Call of Duty Modern Warfare, I think, that we started seeing a standardization as far as controls go and control schemes and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it is good that Overwatch and other modern first-person shooters still have tutorials because, for example... I am not very good at fighting games. And uh, every once in a while, a fighting game will come along that will interest me and I'll look at it. And I, I have no idea what I'm looking at anymore because they've gotten so complicated and, and there's a lot more going on in it. Mortal Kombat 11, for example, I've been watching some early footage of uh, people playing that game. And if you go into the move list, there's stuff like frame data, like your hit advantage yeah. on this. And, and, <laughs> exactly. and, and like I, that is so foreign to me. And unless they tutorialize that, I have no idea what any of that stuff means. But people yeah. who have been playing fighting games for 20 years, like they, they know everything about that. Um, so, I mean, I mean, you can't assume that just because first person shooters have been the way that they are for so long, that everybody is going to understand what those mechanics are right off the bat. Because, uh, yeah, as soon as I, I looked at the, some of the Mortal Kombat systems, I'm like, what happened? What's going on in fighting games? I, don't, I have no idea. But can you make that assumption? Can you make the assumption now that no matter how complicated your game is, 
that players can figure it out because Will mentioned earlier that he learned some game design from YouTube. And a lot of that fighting game stuff, you know, you're talking about frame advantage and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they, they don't necessarily spell that stuff out in the game, but there's a lot of resources that I think, especially the, the bigger AAA companies, can just rely on existing online for players to find that stuff out on their own. That seems like uh, a failure of design to me. I feel like you should never have though? to go outside of the game to learn something about the game. And, I mean, and mine- unless you're like really doing a deep dive. But like Minecraft is a huge success. And that's a game that basically there there is, at least when it first came out, I don't know how much it's changed since then, there was no tutorial. Sure. All of the success of that game and all of the onboarding for that game was handled by the community for that game. Yeah, that's an interesting example because it was such an indie thing to start. I think that that's just indicative of Minecraft itself being just a very wiki necessary game where you know Mm -hmm. a crafting game or survival game some of those are like absolutely need that kind of stuff i I do think that games that are not touting the secrets of combine everything and use hours and hours and hours and hours to try to farm this aspect so that you can combine this thing and get the universal sword or whatever like uh, i think spelunky is a good example where you know you can beat the quote-unquote game, but in order to get to the final boss, final experience, that was something that people figured out over so long and that required Mm -hmm. kind of a wiki community to make that happen. I think if you are not gunning for that, then I think that most uh, tutorial elements should be somewhere in the game. Um, I think that something like the frame rate uh, or the frame data aspect is an interesting case for not having a tutorial because people are trying to make that a uh, competitive scene. But in my personal opinion, I think one of the best things that people can do as game developers and gamers is welcome more gamers to the scene. And I know that as an example, when I was teaching uh, game design and game tools to kids in Portland in libraries and uh, Portland public schools and everything like that, Every single one of our lessons was designed so that somebody that knew what they were talking about, somebody that had already used the game making software that we were using before, or somebody that had already played a ton of games, were able to keep busy and, uh, you know, exceed in something that they wanted to direct themselves in, while students who didn't know anything about games uh, were able to get the basic picture and move forward and be proud about making something. And personally, uh, that's one of my that's one of my goals with games just in general. And that's why Pig Squad is so accessible, is that we want to make sure that people who come in who are professionals have something to do. But we also want people who come in and have never even heard of Mario could come in and know a little bit more about what to do. When you're designing onboarding for a game, Will... How do you know when your approach is successful or how do you define success in that capacity? Playtesting is definitely the measure of success. We've been actually doing a lot of playtesting recently for The World Next Door. And uh, we were, you know, correct in our assumptions that most people knew you could use the left stick to walk around and the X button to interact with doors or characters or anything like that. When we get to the first big tutorial experience in the kind of battle setting, we were pretty correct in understanding how people were reading 
how to shift tiles around and cast spells and dodge enemy attacks. But then there were a couple of instances where people would get stuck in this one corner or they would get stuck on where to go next in this puzzle. And these weren't bugs. These were design challenges. And our ability to watch people play and ask them questions and see what their feedback was enabled us to say, cool, like we will need to test this again, but let's make sure that this functionality is highlighted. Let's make sure that maybe uh, your quest log updates if this happens so that somebody needs to know where to go. Uh, I think all those are super important aspects. Do you leave room for like uh, an idiot like me who couldn't even get through the menus of Madden in your in your like in your onboarding process? Are you like, OK, we got ninety nine percent of the people through the onboarding process. But Steve over there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll just we'll just have to accept that there's some Steve's in the world and, and move on. There's always going to be Steve's in the world. I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> Dude, I mean, uh, another thing that we're doing uh, big time right now is uh, we're playtesting with streamers. We're playtesting with game developers. Uh, we're playtesting with adults who have never played games. We're playtesting with 12-year-olds who have, uh, you know, had a console in their house their entire life. But we're also playtesting with 11-year-olds who have never even seen a game before kind of thing. Um, and that's that's hyperbole. You know, everybody's seen a game. But mm. uh, I think that's the, the range that we're going for. And uh, that actually does not have too much to do with our demographic uh, with regard to all ages. It's Unless you're Blizzard, it's really hard to target all ages. So, but we're, but we're making sure that we're just kind of covering the basics because you never know who's out there who could be enjoying your experience, uh, but just needs that one little extra step to be taken to uh, create access for them. To me, it's super interesting that you brought up testing the game with streamers and, and onboarding streamers because that that's a uh, that's a change that I think a lot of games are going to have to make moving forward is I mean not every game needs to be a, a game that's streamed but I think for a lot of games to be successful that's going to need to be a consideration so it's cool to hear that where you're at in the process of of making this game that that's a consideration that you're you're making and something totally. I wouldn't have have considered like who do we test this game with and it sounds like you you're testing it with an interesting spread of demographics that that I wouldn't have necessarily considered are you seeing a change in the way that people are approaching onboarding i'm thinking of something like vr now last year jared and i went to gdc and it was jared's first time under the hood of vr we did a, a little bit of uh what was it vacation simulator mm -hmm. yeah and that experience is interesting because there's a person there who puts the headset on for you and they hand you the, you know, they put the controllers in your hand and make sure you're comfortable. And then they, they like verbally walk you through the experience of right. playing a, a VR game because that's like a new kind of technology, a new kind of input. Is that having an effect on the way that we're, that people are approaching onboarding or are you seeing the effects of, you know, alternative inputs resonate in the, uh, the onboarding process for game design? Yeah, I think I have two kind of main points to make about that. I mean, I think one, definitely people just assume too much about how intuitive VR is or how intuitive the, uh, you know, like pinch mechanic in the Magic Leap is or any of those kinds of things. Um, I think that it is fairly safe to assume, like I said, that somebody knows that the left stick moves your character around and X is makes you interact with things. But at the same time, that's not always true either. So I think that's interesting. I think that VR games need, like, despite having a very intuitive system, 
really have their work cut out for them, making sure that their elements are properly tutorialized. But another thing I'll say about that with this experience that you're having with somebody uh, walking you through and telling you what to do, essentially, in every single instance, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, their goal was to tutorialize you and prepare you for the rest of their game, or if their goal was to show you good time, make sure that there was minimum amount of friction, and that the experience was short and fun and kept it on your radar. Because um, again, I think with regard to game uh, design in general, I mean, even when we're talking about designing something that a streamer could play, like those are things that we've been thinking about since the very, very beginning, even before doing something like initiating the world next door, where we're sitting down and we're trying to make best practices for ourselves to say, if we can fit this, this, and this in our game, like that will that will be great. Like that's that provides access to everybody. It provides us with great marketing opportunities, anything like that. Of course, we don't hit all of those metrics because it's impossible impossible to make a game for everybody, kind of thing. But I think intentionality there is really important. Where personally, I would assume that somebody at an expo with Vacation Simulator was attempting to get a customer where if somebody is alone at home, untangling their very frustrating pile of VR gear, that the last thing that they want to do is try to learn the new mechanics of a game without it being intuitive. So I would hope that when in the in the full release of Vacation Simulator, or no, sorry, it's Job Simulator. No, we did. We were doing Vacation Simulator. Vacation Simulator. Yeah, I would say I would hope that in the consumer version of Vacation Simulator, that that person's live voice would be replaced with either, you know, uh, even just a recording of what to do. Or mm -hmm. again, like we're talking about a lot of different, more succinct and organic and fluid feeling mechanic or uh, tutorialization mm -hmm. elements that help the player figure out the game, uh, quote unquote, on their own. As, as someone who's played a lot of video games for a, a very long time, the first time I got under the hood of VR, it was a very, I, I felt very lost. Right. It, you know, it, <laughs> it, it feels very, and part of it is because just the physicality of being in VR is, is different. Like, you know, we, we played it standing where normally I, you know, I play seated and I'm like, you know, I'm surrounded by people. So there was a lot of sort of like just initial awkwardness, mm -hmm. but also just the experience of like, it's a, it's a totally new set of inputs. It's a totally new way to interact. I did feel very lost. So without someone being there kind of telling me like, oh, move, you know, reach out and pull the trigger to pick that thing up and then throw it over there. You know, I, I feel like I would have almost been paralyzed. I mean, I, eventually I would kind of figure out how to get around, I'm sure. But it, it is going into VR for the first time is sort of a uh, it's an alien experience. It, it's kind of a for a very foreign feeling. Of, of doing that so I'm, I'm curious to see especially while vr is still kind of the, the wild west of design what standards start to emerge like we have with first person shooters where if you've picked up one first person shooter you've kind right. of picked them all up like what, yeah. what are the what become like the norms and then how does that onboarding process you know develop from there yeah it's very interesting that a lot of people consider even first person experiences in vr a party game because that is essentially creating the tutorial scenario that you would experience at 
mm-hmm. a at an expo. <laughs> you know, it's, oh uh, yeah, no, that's, there's, that's there's definitely of, the there's the VR Sherpas for sure. Right, people I love, mean that's what people that's, love. Like, hey, come over to my house. I'll put the VR on you, and you can get scared <laughs> by this right, shark yeah. attack, which is what which is what I did to my wife. I put her in the shark attack one. She hates oh, sharks. Of She's she has never <laughs> she has never forgiven me. <laughs> yeah, all I'll say is I hope that because VR is such a spectacle right now, people are essentially tutorializing it for each other because mm-hmm. they want to show their friends and everything. And I hope that the industry doesn't rely on that too much because when it becomes a little bit more of a first-person experience or something that people are going to be doing on their own, that will make it harder for people to come in on it when the spectacle isn't as high. I love VR. I, I don't own one. I'm hoping that it sticks around long enough for the price to come down where it's affordable, and then I can then I can jump I get, in and visit all, I these, get a PSVR, visit all these worlds. Dude. The uh, PSVR is really nice. I was I was playing uh, Beat Saber last night. It was badass. And uh, oh, Resident nice. Evil Seven is the scariest thing ever. <laughs> See, that's what I want to get into. Resident it's Evil Seven so is like is my ideal. I would love. So recommended. Like I like the feeling when I am in a game. I kind of you know, I get the basics, and then I'm like, I wonder if I can do this, and then I do it, and it works. Zelda for Nintendo Switch was really good at that. They they introduce you to yeah, your were. abilities and, and new mechanics and they leave room for creativity and you're like, I wonder if I if this will work. And then you do it and it totally works. Mm-hmm. That to me is like probably some of the best tutorializing where it's it, it leaves that curiosity of of things that uh, you want to do. And then, you know, the the game developers or the designers have kind of thought of how that would work and and, and, it, and it just clicks. That's a really great example. That's the kind of game design that I really gravitate to. But sandbox games, you know, Zelda to me feels like a very sandbox, the newest one, I should say. The newest Zelda feels like a very sandboxy game. And in that way, I think it gets a little bit of freedom to to do those things, right? Like where it can introduce a few simple ideas to you and then let you combine those in different ways and, and see how that all plays out. But sandbox games are not, they're not for everyone. Like even, you know, even Zelda amongst the most hardcore Zelda fans is kind of a, or the breath of the wild, even amongst Zelda fans is kind of a divisive game because of that approach, because it's, it strays so far from what the uh, original idea and mechanics, uh, the, the original progression of a Zelda game felt like. I mean, and you mentioned portal, which I think is a, is a great example too, because that is a game that when, you figure something out, you feel like a genius and mm-hmm. it's, and it's fun to fail. I, I never really felt frustrated in that game very often, but you know, it was totally like they didn't have to spell out. Like if you put this at an angle, you use your momentum to clear a gap. Like it, it just kind of, it worked because of yeah. the mechanics and uh, it made me feel smart for figuring it out, even though it's like very obviously what they had in mind from mm. the beginning. Yeah. I would say like, Making your player feel smart. That's one of the like crowning achievements of tutorial design. <laughs> um, yeah. I, was, I was just talking about the same thing last week about uh, Slay the Spire does the same thing where you start combining a bunch of poison type cards to try to pull this off or you try to do damage when you draw cards and then you get a bunch of cards in your deck that allow you to draw cards. So you've never even attacked. You've, you've drawn cards to defeat your enemy. And I think it's so interesting how these are especially because there's no tutorial and there's nobody telling you what to do. These are plans from the get-go from the developers, but because you are not told to do them, you feel like you did it yourself. And that's like, 
one of the one of the best things that you can help your players feel, I think. Well, and this might be a good time to ask this question, but Will, how can the industry improve in the way that it onboards players? Are there ways to get more of those experiences into games, or is that kind of like a like a magical experience that just happens occasionally when when someone absolutely nails a tutorialization? I think it's a pretty magical experience in general, and it's uh, very hard to achieve. But I do think, just based on what you're saying about like allowing that creativity to uh, explore in Portal and say, oh, there's there's something for me to do here, but there's also a physics engine to play with. And it gives you the idea to mess around with things and actually have a little bit of uh, creative time. And again, that's why I think uh, Minecraft is so successful is because people are discovering things that might may or may not be unique but are unique to them i think that's really hard to achieve but it's doable and i think the next best thing that you can definitely plan for is to of course have a very very simple boiled down modular mechanic that is fun even at its base state but gets exponentially funner when you add really cool details to it and i think when it comes to tutorialization specifically that as long as you are, quote unquote, distracting the player, if, if there's a better way of saying it, but just the idea that a tutorial shouldn't be a slog and it shouldn't be the thing that you dread when you go back to replay a game. If you are incorporating story elements that are directly relating to your tutorial, if you are uh, making sure that your player character is either developed enough or a silent protagonist uh, in any attempt to make sure that the player is identifying with the player character as they are going along and learning these things. I think that's another good approach. Things that make you feel like you're doing something important, even though it's just the lowly tutorial moment. Uh, I think those are all some kind of interesting examples of ways in which you can make your tutorial distract from the idea that you are hand-holding and introducing a little bit more agency to a player. Because as you said, with Red Dead Redemption, one of the worst ways to tutorialize is have a card on a screen that doesn't go away until you do this thing or uh, just Mm -hmm. spells everything out and just gives you a text dump. People don't want to feel like they're learning. They want to feel like they're playing, which, you know, that can go hand in hand. And I think that's what tutorialism is all about. You know what I've really noticed over the past couple of years? A lot of Japanese games have been getting popular, like um, you know, Monster Hunter World, for example, is is a good example of this, where uh, Japanese games are still in that here's a two-hour-long tutorial phase. Yeah. Uh, and it, to me, that is extremely frustrating. And I, uh, I think that there's room for improvement on that side. And I don't know what it is uh, about... The, the the culture uh, that makes specifically Japanese developed games feel older or dated, I guess. I don't know. I just know that uh, that the games that I've played in the last couple of years, you know, they they just seem dated because of that old school philosophy of like, here's a tutorial for literally everything in the game, and it's gonna be a box of text that explains it. Or in Monster Hunter World in general, like. I don't know what the hell's going on in that game. I put several you know, <laughs> tens of hours in that game and like I still don't understand the mechanics of it. <laughs> yeah, that one that game is weird because it does have a tutorial section, but it's very poor at teaching you <laughs> what you're supposed to be doing. 
I, uh, I think I had completed the majority of the game without knowing that I could charge my shield with the charge blade. <laughs> so that should tell you everything that you need. It was my main weapon for the entire course of the game, and I had beat the game without ever knowing that that was something you could do. <laughs> I have the tools at my disposal, like the internet, to look that stuff up, and I could have mm -hmm. just found it out if I was curious, but I, I, I don't care that much. You know, it's well, like I was there, like I could, I could functionally play most of the game. Um, and I didn't really want to go to that next level. Well, it almost required me the, to like go outside the game to learn it. The thing with, with the charging the shield is I didn't even realize it was a thing that I didn't like. I didn't know that I didn't know it, if that makes sense. Right. Like It happened by accident one time where I put the prompt in and like my shield was glowing purple, like in the heads up display. And, it, and I went like, what the heck is that? And I went online and looked up like, what is this thing that that happened? Is my shield broken? Oh, no, wait, it's the way you're supposed to be playing the game, you dummy. Uh, <laughs> but but that I mean, that's the, the why thing I that think you're games about, need tutorials about, like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, the, the thing that you're talking about, Jared, with the like extra long tutorials, you know, I think of a game like Final Fantasy 13, which basically up until the very end of that game, they're they're still teaching you stuff that you more or less already know. But yeah. that's the way I also feel with Red Dead Redemption 2 is that even though I've been playing it for whatever it's been 50 hours the game is still telling me like if you if you shoot an enemy in the head it does more damage you know it's like I know I've been I've murdered hundreds of people I am I am the bringer of death why are you coming at me with the, <laughs> this like useful useless information <laughs> The problem with, I think, a lot of these games, and maybe the reason that some of this stuff gets very difficult is because as games have become more complex, a game like Red Dead Redemption 2 has so many systems in it. It has, you know, shooting and horseback riding and hunting, but then you can also, there's boating, there's fishing, there's crafting, there's... Poker and dominoes. Yeah, there's, there's all of these different <laughs> systems that... You know, if they tried to just teach it all up front, it would be like a 10 hour, it would be a 10 hour tutorial thing. So instead they kind of let you out into the world and then teach you that stuff along the way. But if you're someone like me who does all the side missions and, and just putzes around that world doing nothing most of the time anyway, like I've already done all this stuff. So then when it gets tutorialized, it feels out of place and, and weird because I've already done it before. I don't know if there's a good solution to that because... That's a sandbox game also. Yeah, every game is going to be a case-by-case -case basis, I think. And I, I don't know that there's one right way to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, the I, 3D I Zelda games do a good job of doing that because of how they allow you to come back to other areas that are not useless for you to visit and use your new toys. One, mm -hmm. I think they introduce the new mechanics via the you know sub-weapons in ways that allow you to tackle something that's very unique. All the puzzles for every dungeon are very unique. The boss fight typically, it's or you know, rarely the boss fight does not have something to do with the sub weapon you find in that dungeon. And I think that's a great example of a modular design where adding something on top to create a whole different experience just in that moment is very important. So Jared, did you have a thought about how the industry can improve in the way that it onboards players into video games? I, I particularly enjoy stuff that feels natural and I like when I feel smart and uh, I don't yeah. like feeling like I'm being talked to or here's a checklist of things that is going to happen to in the game. And, and, and that just, you know, like I said, with Japanese games, I have a hard time 
Nino Kuni 2, for example, will just stop the gameplay with a pop-up oh box. God. It's like six pages long. Oh my god! And I, those are just like I'm like I, I rather just not use that mechanic than try to figure out what's happening <laughs> with that because it's oh, not man. organic. Such an uh, and it just it doesn't feel good. I would be interested in again. This is sort of like pie in the sky dreaming kind of stuff, but tutorializing and onboarding that is adaptive that that can that has ways to learn the skill level of the player as you're doing it i think about a game like overwatch like is there a way to quickly identify you know does this person understand the mechanics of first person shooters can we immediately have this player start drilling down on the specifics of overwatch without having to teach them how to crouch how to jump how to aim their weapon and shoot it and and is that something that can be applied to a lot of different kinds of games. I think that's absolutely possible and that a lot of people actually approach that subject. It's a very simple solution in some cases, but in games with multiple characters that you can choose from, essentially, you know, my answer to that question of how can the industry better tutorialize things as you go so that you're not seeing a text wall, my answer to that is, again, making just a good designed game and or well-designed game in general where mm-hmm. uh, if systems are... At their very, 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 you know, stripped down, most base level, if it is fun, uh, even if it's simple, and adding new things on top of that is what varies that fun. I think one that that's one of the most successful designs you can do, but two, one of the most successful things for you to tutorialize. Uh, I think even a game like Super Smash Brothers is a great example of a, you know, base set of mechanics with characters that can do all kinds of different things. And I think in the Overwatch example, and in something like Super Smash Brothers, uh, something you could do is put difficulty ratings of the characters or uh, walk people through by having them use specific characters in specific orders. Um, with And maybe not to unlock them, but to tutorialize them. In World of Light, you start with the original roster, and that is not an example of teaching people using simpler characters because those characters weren't necessarily designed to be simple and some of them are top tier, some of them are really low on there. If you've uh, heard of the game Dicey Dungeons, Terry Kavanaugh's making it. He's the guy that did VVVVVV and Super mm. Hexagon. My girlfriend's doing the art for that game, the art and animation and some of the design and so I've been hanging out with that team a lot and it's really interesting to see how they ramp in on difficulty and learning different mechanics. And the primary way is that the first character that you play as, the warrior, has extremely simple types of attacks where it's pretty much just like, yep, do damage or defend. And it teaches you that base. Uh, it's a it's a deck building roguelike. So it teaches you the base deck building and how the dice work in it and everything like that. But there are six total characters and the difficulty ratings go from one through six. So if you are comfortable with that base mechanic and you want to try a little bit of a a wilder character, you can go to the thief. A little bit later, there are characters who technically you could just make a whole different game based on their mechanic, but it shows how elegant the design is that their mechanic is actually an addition to the base mechanic of the warrior. So I think that's an interesting way, especially with games with multiple characters you can play as introduce, you know, in in Overwatch, introduce crouching using a character that's really huge and will maybe benefit by crouching or, you know, something like that. 
what was the name? What was the name of the uh, the roguelike deck building game? Because both of those words are huge turn ons for me. Yeah, dicey dungeons. <laughs> dicey dungeons, um, as in dice that you roll and dungeon that you go exploring in, because that's all what we all like to do. All right, I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to check that one out because that's also a game I could see myself. <laughs> at least just based on your your description of it losing hundreds of hours of my life too <laughs> uh it's very fun yeah um i'm doing some of the uh the voice work for it and oh. uh, i i played a lot <laughs> nice very cool well guys did we uh did we touch on everything that we wanted to touch on about tutorials and onboarding was there anything we left out uh, there's one thing I wanted to bring up, um, and I am of the opinion that I'm, let's just say, I am okay with the idea that not every game has to appeal to every player, right? There's mm. some games that are just yeah. not for me, and I'm okay with that. But I do think it's important to consider accessibility when you're, when we're talking about maybe some tutorializing, because, mm. you know, there, there are people out there that, um, you know, maybe there's a learning disability or they just, they don't, they, for whatever reason, need a little bit extra help. So, um, you know, I say a lot on this on this show, but just having options, you know, I, I enjoy being able to turn off tooltips or turn on tooltips when I need them. So I think accessibility is probably a big thing that developers should consider when thinking about tutorials as well. No, that's that's very that's a that's a great point. I'm glad yeah, you, uh, I agree. you got that in before we close before we close this out. I think, Jared. I think difficulty settings in games might be the one topic we've discussed on this show that I've I've changed my opinion on the most since we discussed it. Oh, really? I still have some of the same thoughts I did when we recorded that very first episode, but having done our episode on accessibility and then also just a lot of the research I've done on video games since then, it's definitely sort of changed the way I look at difficulty settings in games, the way that I... Uh, that I view that topic. So that might be the one that I've, that my opinion has changed the most on over the course of doing this show. All right. Now, did we get to everything? Yes. Okay. I think that's perfect. We never get to everything, but yeah. (laughs) Perfect. If you, the listener have any questions or comments about tutorials or any of our previous topics, please email us. Our email address is podcast at gbfeature.com, or you can connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Please do. I'm curious to hear what people think. Like, what what are people's favorite tutorial levels? Uh, what are people's least favorite tutorial levels? Any any feedback about the show, our show in general? Let us know. I want I want to hear something from somebody. Send us an email. Uh, and with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Will Lewis. Will, thank you so much for being here, man. This has been a great conversation. It's been so great to talk with you. Uh, where can people find your work? How can they keep up with the uh, the stuff that you're doing? And where can they find your game that you're working on. Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at GameWillPDX. PDX is in Portland. Uh, Rose City Games, you can learn about by following us on Twitter at Rose City Games or going to RoseCityGames.com. There's a ton of information on there about World Next Door, including a lot of the conventions that we're going to be coming to in the near future. You can also learn more about the Portland Indie Game Squad and just the general PDX game development community uh, by following us on Twitter at Pig Squad or by going to pigsquad.com. Again, uh, the majority of our events are free and open to the public, and we have lots of cool community online channels to chat with people on, if that's how you say that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely do. Definitely um, follow Rose City Games, follow Pig Squad, follow Will. Uh, a lot of good information about what's going on in the Portland indie game scene, and also good way to follow World Next Door. The game looks incredible. I can't wait to play it. Like I said, it, it looks like the kind of thing that I'll that I'll lose hours of my life to. So 
Yeah, thank you so much. We're very excited about it. And again, thank you for being on the show. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. <laughs>